All right, I didn't think we were going to go this long on this uh, topic of uh, holiness, but I just try to be led by the Spirit week to week and uh, uh, just follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. So we're still on this um, series in the likeness of His resurrection. This is the seventh uh, session in this series, and we're still talking about holiness. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to our master text in the uh, book of Matthew, chapter 25. And uh, while you're finding that, you know, I just want to say by way of introduction that we've been talking about, as I said, holiness for these last several weeks. And in doing so, we've had a few toe-stomping moments, haven't we, if you know what I mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, there may be a little bit more of that today, but if you'll stick with me, um, I think that, uh, you know, we've got to get through some tough stuff in order to get to the good stuff later, the good news later. So I hope you'll stay hooked with me. So let's go ahead and read this master text. Stand with me, if you will. This is a little bit of a longer reading this morning, so be patient with me as we honor the Word of God and stand as it's being read. The words of the Master Jesus, the parable of the ten virgins. Verse 1, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut." Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat if you would. Praise God. In this parable, why the imagery of virgins? Well, remember that God is very much into symbolism. Did you know that? He likes symbolism. And virginity is simply a symbolic representation of purity. Therefore, the virgins in this parable represent those who have separated themselves from the world in order to follow Christ. But clearly, we can see that there's a problem with half of those who made that decision. It appeared to be a half-hearted decision and that lack of diligence would cost them dearly. Now, in order to understand this parable more fully, let's go back in time together for a few minutes and put ourselves in the place of Jesus' audience, which at this time, and at the time of this parable, was the Galileans, the people of Galilee. Now, by the way, new archaeological discoveries have unearthed some interesting details about the culture of Galilee during the time of Christ. Now, just to clarify, you know, Galilee was part of Israel, and Israel had its own culture, but Galilee had its own little subculture. It's kind of like, you know, in the United States, we have a lot of subcultures, right? You know, the Deep South has a very different culture than 
northern states, etc. So that's what Galilee was like. They had their own little subculture. So this new, these new discoveries and uh, archaeological discoveries have unearthed some of those details that give us more insight about Galilean culture in particular, and specifically Galilean weddings, which really pertains to this parable today. So uh, in, in ancient Galilee, when a man proposed to a woman, there was a formal betrothal ceremony. Now, this wasn't the wedding. This was simply a public proposal. You know, here in our culture, we do wedding proposals, marriage proposals privately. They did it in public, in a ceremony in Galilee. And so the woman had the option at that time to either accept or reject that proposal. So if the woman accepted, then at the end of that ceremony, the uh, groom-to-be would announce that he is going away for a time to prepare a place for her. Now, now as I go through these customs, you're going to notice the biblical parallels. Okay, so pay close, close attention. So at the end of that ceremony, the bridegroom would go away and then announce that he was going away to prepare a place for her, but he promised that he would come back to get her. And after the ceremony, the groom would then leave to go and begin working on their new home, which was usually built on as an addition to the father's house. And this separation, by the way, was to be for a period of about one year. Now, during that time, the bride would begin to prepare herself, uh, such as working on her wedding gown, and other preparations, and keeping herself pure during that process, okay, which is another very important parallel. Now, by the way, here again, all these parallels, neither she nor the groom knew when the bridegroom was coming back for her. They didn't know the day nor the hour that the bridegroom was coming back. Only the father of the bridegroom knew this, it was he who would make the decision. And by the way, that return would always occur most of the time in the middle of the night in some wee hour of the morning, which gives us new insight about what Jesus said, that he will return like a thief in the night. Remember? So as the end of that year began to approach, the, uh, the bride would begin sleeping in her wedding gown. So she could be ready at a moment's notice when the call rang out, and all of her bridesmaids did the same thing. And they would keep their lamps burning with plenty of oil in, in, in case they were called upon quickly for service. And by the way, this would occur in the middle of the night to demonstrate that this was going to happen at a time when not everyone was necessarily ready or prepared. But here's where the parable gets ominous. The ten, there was ten bridesmaids that were called to be ready for service, but only five of them were found to be ready when the bridegroom returned for the bride. Now, oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, and those five unprepared bridesmaids were not being watchful. They were not being watchful. They were not diligent to have enough oil in their lamps to take, take part in the procession to the groom's house. So, 
back to the bridegroom for just a moment. When the father of the bridegroom finally decided that tonight's the night, and again, only he knew when, he decided when, so when he finally made that decision, he would awaken his son, they would sleep in the same room together so, so that the, the father of the bridegroom could go over to him and wake him up and then announce to him, go get your bride. And then, upon that announcement, the groom and his groomsmen um, would go out into the streets and began to blow a shofar, a ram's horn, and awaken the townspeople so that they could lead a procession to go get the bride. Now, very important point here. Only those who were already dressed and ready could rush out of their houses to join the procession at a moment's notice. So then, after the bridegroom and his procession arrived to pick up the bride, after a year of waiting, the bride was finally reunited with the bridegroom, along with those who are ready to take part in the wedding party. Now, get this, another really great parallel here. The bride would not just, at that time, follow the groom to the father's house. No, she was lifted into the air. Get this, she was hoisted onto a little platform and carried all the way back. As a matter of fact, in um, the ancient Galileans referred to this custom as flying the bride to the father's house. You're getting the parallels, right? Now, when they arrived at the father's house and everyone sat down to the wedding feast, the, the, the door was shut behind them. No one went out. And no one came in for seven days. Now that parallels the seven years that the Bible tells us that the marriage supper of the Lamb will last. Seven earth years, apparently, the marriage supper of the Lamb will last. So another parallel there. Well, in Galilee, um, when everybody sat down for the wedding feast and the door was shut, that door was not allowed to be opened again during that period of time. Uh, those who were late to the party, therefore, were not allowed in. Oh, you got to catch that. Those who were late to the party, who had not prepared themselves the, for the bridegroom's arrival, were not allowed to be let in. So folks, when Jesus told this parable, everyone immediately recognized the parallel imagery. Because they knew these customs. I mean, Jesus was just speaking about his customs. That's why he told parables, because it connected with something that they were already doing in their culture. That's why he talked so much about agriculture as an example, because it was an agricultural society. So this parable hit its mark with the hearers, because they knew exactly what he was talking about. All those parallels represent the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, I'm going to make a statement here. In preaching this and reading this, we're not talking about escapism here. We're not talking about looking to the sky and saying, well, Jesus is going to come and take me away any day now, so I'm just going to stay here, you know, sit here and do nothing. No, the Bible says occupy until he comes. Yeah. And that's, see, I'm, I'm not preaching escapism. I'm preaching preparedness. 
And that's what Jesus was preaching. He wasn't preaching escapism. He was preaching preparedness. Be prepared in season and out. Let the Father find you doing something productive when he arrives. Amen. Now, by the way, here's a key concept for this morning then. And we can derive this from not only this parable, but also what, you know, the trends that we see here in the United States and abroad as well. So more than half the people who identify themselves as Christ followers are spiritually asleep. We saw that in this parable. I think we can also see this in the church culture today. More than half the people who identify themselves as Christ followers are spiritually asleep. And one half of the church is actually a false church. One half of the church is actually a false church. Let me give you some statistics here. Um, I was reading up on this recently. Uh, 43% of Americans now consider themselves Christians. That's about half of what it was 20 years ago when about 85% of Americans considered themselves Christians at around the year 2000. It's uh, cut in half from that, in that period of time. 41% of Americans attend church weekly, but only about between 5 and 15% of people claiming to be Christians have core beliefs and lifestyles that are biblical. Depending on what, what source you read and what study you read, it's between 5 and 15%. So if we take the higher number, in other words, only 15% of those calling themselves Christians are ready for the bridegroom. Because their, their core values aren't even biblical. Their lifestyles don't reflect a biblical worldview. So let's talk about that a little bit more. I want to address here a, a very sobering passage in the book of James that talks about friendship with the world. And let's read that together and then I'm going to elaborate. It says this, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever chooses to be a friend of the world renders himself an enemy of God. That's one of the most sobering passages in the Bible, especially for today's church culture. And on that note then, I want to elaborate on that word friendship, which in the Greek is the word philia, which means affection, fondness, love, and friendship. It's referring to friendship with the world, an affection for the world, a fondness for the world, a love for the world, friendship with the world. And then let's look at that word hostility, which is directed toward God, which is the Greek word ekthra, I think is how it's pronounced which means enmity, hostility, alienation, and hatred. You make yourself a friend of the world. You make yourself someone who's hostile toward God. That's what it says. So, look, folks, do you know what I want to say to some church people? Choose a side, for Pete's sake. Choose a side. I like what Elijah said to the people at Mount Carmel. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, okay, fine. Go ahead and follow him. I would say it this way. If you're so in love with the world, go ahead and go serve the world and get off the fence for Pete's sake. But understand what you're signing up for because the wages of sin is death. 
But if God is God and you want to please him, then once again, get off the fence and begin serving him with your whole heart. Stop trying to be married to God while you're having a fling with the world on the side. That doesn't work. It's never worked. It will only lead to all kinds of harm and eventually your spiritual shipwreck. I want to read another hard-hitting passage for you out of the book of Hebrews. It's a little bit longer, so bear with me as I read through these several verses here in Hebrews chapter 10. If we deliberately go on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no further sacrifice for sins remains, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume all adversaries. It's referring to God's adversaries. Verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think one deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Ladies and gentlemen, we live in a culture today that preaches all grace and no judgment for the most part. And so people live very loose lives, and the Bible says we profane the grace of God. We trample the grace of God when we were just like, well, it's all grace. I can, hey, man, I can just go out and do what I want, you know, for the most part. And, you know, I'll say a Hail Mary at confession next week, and it'll be all fine again. And, you know, there's a lot of Protestant people that live that way too, right? There's a trampling of God's grace. You've heard me say many times before that grace isn't just unmerited favor or mercy that you don't deserve. It is that, but if you've truly experienced the grace of God, it teaches us, according to Titus 2, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled and upright life in this present age. Let's keep reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, folks, listen, God is like any earthly husband. He hates it when people's hearts are set on an adulterous lover while living in his house. Let me ask you, married couple, something for a moment. How many of you would be okay with your spouse cheating on you just a little bit? I mean, how, how about, okay, let me set up a scenario for you. How about like one weekend a month? Not even, no, not even that often. How about one weekend a year? One weekend a year, and your spouse is true to you all the rest of the year, but one weekend a year, your spouse goes out and has a, a, a fling with somebody on the side for a, for a weekend. But they're, they're, they're faithful to you for the rest of the year. Would that be okay? Of course not. Of course not. My point is that God hates adultery in any form, whether it's physical or spiritual. He requires wholehearted devotion to him. Of course, that doesn't mean that we never slip up and blow it from time to time. And thank God for his grace when we do, right? Hallelujah. But I'm talking about a track record of compromise and worldliness. You know, the church has become so infiltrated with the world these days that you can barely tell the difference between people who claim to be Christians and those who don't. So I say again, pick a side. 
Now, I want to give you a little illustration about where I'm going with the next few minutes of this teaching. I have here these two little wands. These are magnetic wands. These are those little magnetic wands that you stick into crevices and pick up screws or pick up lost earrings or whatever else. They're magnetized on the ends. Um, and so I would like a volunteer. Uh, Lily, would you come up and help me for a second? In fact, stand right up here so everybody can see you really well. So what I want to do, I want to see if you can get the magnetized ends to, you know, if you could just push them together. Can everybody see these okay? Okay. Lily, would you do that with the magnetized ends? Can you put them together? <laughs> okay. Good enough. All right. So that's, that's fine. Thank you, Lily. Um, uh, yeah. I, uh, I, wanted to, well, I wanted you to see that because it, it makes a point. Of course, all of you know that the, uh, the north poles of magnets don't stick together. No matter how hard you try, no matter how strong you are, you cannot make those north poles stick together because they're polar opposites. Okay, so I want to make a point about this. See, when we are truly separated unto God, certain things should repel us. Certain things should repel us, just like those two polar, those two north poles of those magnets repel each other. Okay? See, if we're in Christ, the world and us doesn't attract each other anymore. Did I lose you on that one? Okay, not that, you know, you won't still have to work through some things as you grow in the Lord. I realize there's a process of holiness, there's a progression of sanctification. I get that, okay? But the, the more that you, look, the day I got saved, the day I got saved, uh, there's certain things that, I mean, I didn't even have to try anymore. My filthy mouth that I used to have, gone, just like that. There was just certain things that didn't appeal to me anymore. Now, there was other things I had to work through, terrible temper and the other things that the Lord you know, took me through in a, in, a, in a process, but there were certain things that didn't appeal to me anymore. I got together with old friends. I tried, it, I tried that. I got together with old friends, and I realized, and I, would, I loved some of these guys, and we, we were like you know, two peas in a pod before, but when I got saved, I got together with those guys, and I'm like, whoa, I, I, this is not the same. It's like oil and water now, right? You see, you can tell when someone gets set ablaze by the love of God because there are certain things of this world that repel them. It's like Lot when he was living in Sodom. You remember how the Lord explains, or the Bible explains, how Lot felt about what he saw living in Sodom? Let's read a little bit of that. From 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Lot, a righteous man, distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Folks, listen. When a so-called Christian can be comfortable around all kinds of perversion and sin, that should be an alarm signal about one's spiritual condition. See, if a person can occupy themselves with the sewage of the world's entertainment and like it, there's a big problem. 
there's a big problem. The Bible says that we're to be separated from the world. What did the Lord say? Come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. And honestly, when I look around at what our society has become, it torments me, much like Lot was probably tormented when he lived in Sodom. Donna and I took our granddaughters to get some ice cream at Ritter's um, a few days ago, and uh, Donna said, don't look now, one o'clock. And there was a, a young teenage boy dressed in a skirt. And it tormented me in my soul to see that, to see how twisted our society has become and how confused by sin people have become. But that's out there. What about in here, in the church? See, folks, if you're in Christ, you have to understand you are under new management. You're under new management. Let's read about that in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You're not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, that word translated into glory in that passage means to esteem and honor in a wide application. That means in everything that we do, we think about how to esteem God and honor him with how we use our bodies and how we present ourselves to the rest of the world. And here's why we need to hear a message like this from time to time, folks, because we don't even realize it sometimes when idolatry has crept up on us and overtaken us. Idolatry. In other words, the attitude, a lot of people have this attitude. They would never say it this way, but their lifestyles reflect this attitude right here. I'm in control of my own life, and Jesus is just a little part of my life over here when I need him. Now, again, a lot of people would never articulate it like that, but their lifestyles reflect that attitude. And you know what? If the fence sitters would really be honest, they would have to admit that flirting with the world hasn't really gained them anything over the long haul. It's only cost them dearly. You know, 1 Peter 4.8 says that godliness has value for all things, not only in this life, but also the one to come. And by implication, the opposite would also be true. Ungodliness is going to cost us dearly, both in this life and also in the one to come. So therefore, a key concept for this morning is that when you came to Christ, you gave up ownership of your body. Most Christians in this culture don't live that way. They think they own their own bodies. But if you came to Christ, you don't. You gave up ownership because you serve a new master now. And actually, you know what? I want to tell you something. When you were serving the world, the Bible says that your father was Satan. Did Did you know that? So you've always served someone... You were always enslaved to someone. You were, you were enslaved to Satan before Christ. And now the Bible says that we're servants of righteousness. We're slaves of righteousness. God is our new master now. And he's a good master. He's a good daddy. Praise the Lord. So 
I want you to get this concept too. When we try to assume control of something God owns, it cools the spiritual fires within. That means that if you feel a little dry spiritually today, well, it might be because you're running the show in your life and instead of making Jesus the center of everything. Let me say that again. If you feel a little spiritually dry today, there could be a number of reasons why that happens, but it could be one of the reasons could be because you're running the show in your life instead of making Jesus the center of everything. Hallelujah. <clears throat> and if that describes you, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, it's not too late to wake up and trim your lamps. Praise God, the call is ringing out today. Arise, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Hallelujah. Now, Ephesians 4.30 says this, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, the Holy Spirit lives within you. He sees everything that you do, everything that you watch, everything that you think, hears everything that you say. He can be grieved. It is possible to grieve the Holy Spirit. And if we've honestly and truly experienced God's grace legitimately, genuinely, it should change our outlooks on life. It should change the way we think, change the way we talk, change the way we behave, and even change the way we adorn ourselves. Get this, in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5, it says that the intentions of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. Well, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> well, I'm about to tell you. It means our own intentions are not even always obvious to us. But a man of understanding will examine his own heart and check his deeper motives. So check your heart and your motives on a regular basis. Examine yourself, the Bible says, to see if you're still in the faith. See, what's motivating you to do what you do? What's motivating you to put on that outfit, to drop that name in a conversation? What's your motive in posting that picture or that video or that meme on Facebook or your social media pages or whatever? I like this quote right here from Luke Levine on that note about social media. Check this out. Can you imagine what the Apostle Paul could have done if he would have had access to Facebook and the Internet and Instagram? Can you imagine what his posts would have been like? God has given this generation an incredible opportunity for evangelism. Do not waste it on yourself. I'm going to add a, another quote to that by our own Brent Denny, who calls Facebook Pride Book. Because so often it's all about me. But man, what an opportunity for you to share the perspective of the kingdom of God on your social media pages, right? You see, if we were honest, I'm almost done here. If, you, if we were honest, we would have to admit that most of what we do from day to day is motivated by the pride of life. Look, if we're not our own anymore, we don't even have rights over our own bodies anymore, ladies and gentlemen. We belong to our new master, Jesus, and pleasing him should dictate every choice that we make right on down to our activity on social media. This is my last slide right here. You know, folks, there's a lot in this world that tries to pull us off track, isn't there? 
hatred, pornography, self-promotion, greed, addiction, bitterness, immorality, excessive entertainment, selfishness, anger, pride, and the list goes on and on and on. But I want to give you some good news to leave on today. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14 The Apostle Paul said this, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize of God's heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. Do you notice the language there? Do you notice the the energy and the effort that's there? Yes, we've already been saved by grace, That's a done deal. But when it comes to fulfilling your call for why God's called you, when it comes to being more fruitful for the kingdom and growing in Christ, there's some effort on your part and mine. So I'm going to read that again as we come to a close. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Some of you need to forget what was behind in your life. And do what this says, straining toward what is ahead, and press on toward the goal to win the prize of God's heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. See, let me leave you on this this note right here. There is a prize laid up for you and me. There is a prize laid up for you and me for the ones who will persevere and not get weary in well-doing. Hallelujah. Stand with me, please, if you would. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.